Chapter Fifteen, Part One of My Life on the Plains. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Before proceeding to narrate the incidents of the pursuit which led us to the Battle of the Washita, I will refer to the completion of our hasty preparations to detach ourselves from the encumbrance of our immense wagon train. In the last chapter, it had been seen that the train was to be left behind under the protection of an officer and eighty cavalrymen, with orders to push after us, following our trail in the snow as rapidly as the teams could move. Where or when it would again join us, no one could foretell. In all probability, however, not until the pursuit had terminated, and we had met and vanquished our savage foes, or had been defeated by them. Under existing orders, the guard for the protection of our train was each day under the command of the officer of the day, the tour of duty and the latter continuing twenty-four hours, beginning in the morning. On that day, the duties of officer of the day fell in regular routine upon Captain Lewis McLean Hamilton, 7th Cavalry, a grandson of Alexander Hamilton. Of course, this detail would require him to remain behind with the train, while his squadron, one of the finest in the command, would move forward to battle under charge of another. To a soldier of Hamilton's pride and ambition to be left behind in this inglorious manner was galling in the extreme. He foresaw the situation at once, and the moment that intelligence of the proposed movement reached him, he came galloping up from the rear in search of me. I was busily engaged at the time superintending the hurried arrangements for commencing the pursuit. Coming up to me with a countenance depicting the most earnest anxiety, his first words were to frame an inquiry as to whether I intended him to remain behind. Fully appreciating his anxious desire to share with his comrades the perils of the approaching conflict, and yet unable to substitute without injustice another officer for him, unless with the consent of the former, I could not give him the encouragement he desired. The moment that the plans for the pursuit were being formed, I remembered that the accidents of service were to deprive the pursuing column of the presence and aid of one whose assistance in such an emergency could always be confidently relied upon. Some of his brother officers had bethought themselves of the same, and at once came to me with the remark that we ought to have Hamilton with us. My only reply was that while my desires were all one way, my duty prescribed that Hamilton should remain with the guard and train, and it being his detail, and it also being necessary that some officer should remain upon this important duty. I answered his repeated requests that while I desired him in the command of his squadron, particularly then of all times, I was powerless to have it so without being unjust to some other officer. While forced to admit this to be true, he added, it seems hard that I must remain. Finally, I said to him that all I could do would be to allow him to get some other officer to willingly take his place with the train adding that some officer might be found in the command who, from indisposition of other causes, did not feel able to undertake a rapid and tiresome pursuit such as we would probably have, 
and under such circumstances I would gladly order the change. He at once departed in search of some one who would assume his duties with the train and leave him free to resume his post at the head of his splendid squadron. That squadron, in whose organization and equipment he had displayed such energy and forethought, and whose superior excellency had efficiency long bore the impress of his hand. I am thus minute in detailing these circumstances affecting the transfer of Captain Hamilton from one duty to another, as the sad sequel will show how intimately connected the destiny of one of the parties was with the slight matter of this change. Hamilton had been absent but a few minutes when he returned overflowing with joy and remarked that an officer had been found who consented to take his place, ending with the question, Shall I join my squadron? To this I gladly assented, and he galloped to another part of the field where his men were to hasten and superintend their preparations for the coming struggle. The officer who had consented to take Hamilton's place with the train had that day been affected with a partial snow-blindness, and felt himself disqualified and unable to join in the pursuit, and it was exceedingly proper for him under the circumstances to agree to the proposed change. During all this time, Elliot, with his three companies of cavalry, was following hard and fast upon the trail left by the Indians in the deep snow. By being informed, as we were, of the direction in which the trail was leading, and that direction being favorable to our position, the main command by moving due south would strike the trail of the Indians, and Elliot also at some point not far in the rear, perhaps of Elliot's party. Everything being in readiness to set out at the expiration of the allotted twenty minutes, the advance was sounded, and the pursuit on our part began. Our route carried us across the broad, open plains, the snow over a foot in depth, with surface, of course, unbroken. This rendered it exceedingly fatiguing to the horses moving in the advance, and changes were frequently rendered necessary. The weather, which during the past few days had been so bitterly cold, moderated on that day sufficiently to melt the upper surface of the snow. After leaving the wagon train, we continued our march rapidly during the remaining hours of the forenoon and until the middle of the afternoon. Still no tidings from Elliot's party nor any sign of a trail. No halt was made during the day either for rest or refreshment. Toward evening we began to feel anxious concerning Elliot's detachment. Could it be that the Indians had discovered that they were being pursued? and had broken up into smaller parties, or changed the direction of their trail. If so, could Elliot's messengers reach us in time to make the information valuable to us? We had hurried along, our interest increasing with each mile passed over, until the sun was not more than one hour high above the western horizon, and still strain our eyes as we would and scan the white surface of the plains in every direction, in our front the snow seemed unbroken and undisturbed as far as the eye could reach our scouts and indian guides were kept far out in the front on the proper flank to discover if possible the trail at last one of the scouts gave us a signal that the trail had been discovered 
and in a few moments the command had reached it, and we were now moving with lighter and less anxious hearts. After studying the trail, our Osage warriors informed us that the Indians whose trails we were pursuing were undoubtedly a war party, and had certainly passed where we were then during the forenoon. This was encouraging, and a free rein was given to our horses as we hastened along through the snow. The object now was to overtake, as soon as practicable, the party of Elliot, which from the heavy trail we could see was in advance of us. The almost level and unbroken character of the country enabled us to see for miles in all directions, and in this way we knew that Elliot must be many miles ahead of our party. At the same time I could see that we were gradually descending into a valley, probably of some stream, and far in advance appeared the dim outline of timber, such as usually fringes the banks of many western streams. Selecting a few well-mounted troopers and some of the scouts, I directed them to set out at a moderate gallop to overtake Elliot, with orders of the latter to halt at the first favorable point where wood and water could be obtained, and await our arrival, informing him at the same time that after allowing the men an hour to prepare a cup of coffee and to feed the rest of their horses, it was my intention to continue the pursuit during the night, a measure to which I felt urged by the slight thawing of the snow that day, which might result in our failure if we permitted the Indians to evade us until the snow had disappeared. Satisfied now that we were on the right course, our anxiety lessened, but our interest increased. Soon after dark we reached the valley whose timbered surface we had caught faint glimpses of hours before. Down this valley and through this sparse timber the trail led us. Hour after hour we struggled on, hoping to overtake the three troops in advance, for hunger, unappeased since before daylight, began to assert its demands in the strongest terms. Our faithful horses were likewise in great need of both food and water, as well as rest, as neither had been offered them since four o'clock in the morning. So far had Elliot pushed his pursuit that our scouts were a long time in reaching him, and it was nine o'clock at night when the main command arrived at the point where he and his three troops were found halted. A stream of good water with comparatively deep banks ran nearby, while the valley at this point was quite heavily timbered. To enable the men to prepare a cup of coffee and at the same time give us no evidence of our presence to the Indians, who, for all we knew, might not be far from us, advantage was taken of the deep banks of the creek, and by building small fires down under the edge of the bank, they were prevented from being seen, except at a small distance. At the same time, the horses were relieved of their saddles and unbitted, and a good feed of oats distributed to each. Officers and men were glad to partake in the same quality of simple fare that night, consisting only of a most welcome and refreshing cup of good strong coffee and a handful of army crackers, hard tack. By waiting an hour, we not only gained by rest and refreshment, but the light of the moon would then probably be sufficient to guide us on our night ride. When the hour had nearly expired, we began our preparations in the most quiet manner 
to resume the pursuit. No bugle calls were permitted, as in this peculiar country sound travels a long distance, and we knew not but that our wily foes were located nearby. Before starting, I conferred with our Indian allies, all of whom were firmly convinced that our enemy's village was probably not far away, and most likely was in the valley in which we then were, as the trail for some miles had led us down the stream on whose banks we halted. Little Beaver, who acted as spokesman for the Osage, seemed confident that we could overtake and surprise the Indians we had been pursuing, and most probably follow them direct to their village. But much to my surprise, Little Beaver strongly advised that we delay further pursuit until daylight, remaining concealed in the timber as we were at the time. When asked for his reasons for favoring such a course, he could give none of a satisfactory nature. I then concluded that his disinclination to continue pursuit that night arose from the natural reluctance shared by all Indians to attack an unseen foe, whether concealed by darkness or other natural or artificial means of shelter. Indians rarely attack between the hours of dark and daylight, although their stealthy movements through the country, either in search of an enemy or when attempting to elude them, are often executed under cover of night. As soon as each troop was in readiness to resume the pursuit, the troop commander reported the fact at headquarters. Ten o'clock came and found us in our saddles. Silently the command stretched out its long length as the troopers filed off four abreast. First came two of our Osage scouts on foot. Those were to follow the trail and lead the command. They were our guides, and the panther creeping upon its prey could not have advanced more cautiously or quietly than did these friendly Indians, as they seemed to glide rather than walk over the snow-clad surface. To prevent the possibility of the command coming precipitately upon our enemies, the two scouts were directed to keep three or four hundred yards in advance of all others, then came in single file the remainder of our Osage guides and the white scouts, among the rest California Joe. With these I rode that I might be as near the advance guard as possible. The cavalry followed in the rear, at the distance of a quarter or a half a mile. This precaution was necessary from the fact that the snow, which had thawed slightly during the day, was then freezing, forming a crust which, broken by the tread of so many hundreds of feet, produced a noise capable of being heard at a long distance. Orders were given, prohibiting even a word being uttered above a whisper. No one was permitted to strike a match or light a pipe, the latter a great deprivation to the soldier. In this silent manner we rode mile after mile. Occasionally an officer would ride by my side and whisper some inquiry or suggestion, but aside from this our march was unbroken by sound or deed. At last we discovered that our two guides in front had halted and were awaiting my arrival. Word was quietly sent to halt the column until inquiry in the front could be made. Upon coming up with the two Osages we were furnished as an example of the wonderful and peculiar powers of the Indian. 
One of them could speak broken English, and in answer to my question as to what is the matter, he replied, Me don't know, but me smell fire. By this time several of the officers had quietly ridden up, and upon being informed of the Osage's remark, each endeavored by sniffing the air to verify or disprove the report. All united in saying that our guide was mistaken. Some said he was probably frightened, but we were unable to shake the confidence of the Osage warrior in his first opinion. I then directed him and his companion to advance even more cautiously than before, and the column, keeping up the interval, resumed its march. After proceeding about a half a mile, perhaps further, again our guide halted, and upon coming up with them I was greeted with a remark uttered in a whisper, Me told you so, and sure enough, looking in the direction indicated, were to be seen the embers of a wasted fire, scarcely a handful, yet enough to prove that our guide was right, and to cause us to feel the greater confidence in him. The discovery of these few coals of fire produced almost breathless excitement. The distance from where we stood was from seventy-five to a hundred yards, not in the line of our march, but directly to our left in the edge of the timber. We knew at once that none but Indians, and they hostile, had built that fire. Where were they at that moment? Perhaps sleeping in the vicinity of the fire. It was almost certain to our minds that the Indians we had been pursuing were the builders of the fire. Were they still there and asleep? We were too near already to attempt to withdraw undiscovered. Our only course was to determine the facts at once and be prepared for the worst. I called for a few volunteers to quietly approach the fire and discover whether there were Indians in the vicinity. If not, to gather such information as was obtainable as to their numbers and departure. All the Osages and a few of the scouts quickly dismounted and with rifles in readiness and fingers on the triggers, silently made their way to the nearest point of the timber, Little Beaver and Hard Rope leading the way. After they had disappeared in the timber, they still had to pass over more than half the distance before reaching the fire. These moments seemed like hours, and those of us who were left sitting on our horses in the open moonlight and within easy range from the spot where the fire was located felt anything but comfortable during the suspense. If Indians, as then seemed highly probable, were sleeping around the fire, our scouts would arouse them and we would be in fair way to be picked off without being in a position to defend ourselves. The matter was soon determined. Our scouts soon arrived at the fire and discovered it to be deserted. Again did the skill and knowledge of our Indian allies come in play. Had they not been with us, we should undoubtedly have assumed that the Indians who had occasion to build a fire, and those we were pursuing, constituted one party. From examining the fire and observing the great number of pony tracks in the snow, the Osages arrived at a different conclusion, and were convinced that we were then on the ground used by the Indians for grazing their herds of ponies. The fire had been kindled by the Indian boys, who attended the herding to warm themselves by, and in all probability we were then within two or three miles of the village. 
I will not endeavor to describe the renewed hope and excitement that sprang up. Again we set out, this time more cautiously if possible than before, the command and scouts moving at a greater distance in the rear. In order to judge the situation more correctly, I this time accompanied the two Osages. Silently we advanced, I mounted, they on foot, keeping at the head of my horse. Upon nearing the crest of each hill, as is invariably the Indian custom, one of the guides would hasten a few steps in advance and peer cautiously over the hill. Accustomed to this, I was not struck by observing it until once when the same one who discovered the fire advanced cautiously to the crest and looked carefully into the valley beyond. I saw him place his hand above his eyes as if looking intently at some object, then crouch down and come creeping back to where I waited for him. What is it? I inquired as soon as he reached my horse's side. Heaps engines down there pointing in the direction from which he had just come. Quickly dismounting and giving the reins to the other guide, I accompanied the Osage to the crest, both of us crouching low so as not to be seen in the moonlight against the horizon. Looking in the direction indicated, I could instinctively recognize the presence of a large body of animals of some kind in the valley below, and at a distance which then seemed not more than half a mile. I looked at them long and anxiously, the guide uttering not a word, but was unable to discover anything in their appearance different from what might be presented by a herd of buffalo under similar circumstances. Turning to the Osage, I inquired in a low tone why he thought there were Indians there. Meher Dogbark was the satisfactory reply. Indians are noted for the large number of dogs always found in their villages, but never accompanying their war parties. I waited quietly to be convinced. I was assured, but wanted to be doubly so. It was rewarded in a moment by hearing the barking of a dog in the heavy timber off to the right of the herd, and soon after I heard the tingling of a small bell. This convinced me that it was really the Indian herd I then saw the bell being one worn around the neck of some pony who was probably the leader of the herd. I turned to retrace my steps when another sound was borne to my ear through the cold, clear atmosphere of the valley. It was the distant cry of an infant, and savages, though they were, and justly outlawed by the number and atrocity of their recent murders and depredations on the helpless settlers of the frontier, I could not but regret that in a war such as we were forced to engage in, the mode and circumstances of battle would possibly prevent discrimination. Leaving the two Osages to keep a careful lookout, I hastened back until I met the main party of the scouts and Osages. They were halted, and a message sent back to halt the cavalry, enjoining complete silence and directing every officer to ride to the point we then occupied. The hour was then past midnight. Soon they came, and after dismounting and collecting in a little circle, I informed them of what I had seen and heard, and in order that they might individually learn as much as possible of the character of the ground and location of the village, I proposed that all should remove their sabers, that the clanking might make no noise, and proceed gently to the crest 
and there obtain a view of the valley beyond this was done not a word was spoken until we crouched together and cast our eyes in the direction of the herd and village in whispers i briefly pointed out everything that was to be seen and mentioned all to return to where they had left our sabres then standing in a group upon the ground or crust of snow the plan of the attack was explained to all and each assigned his post the general plan was to employ the hours between then and daylight to completely surround the village and at daybreak or as soon as it was barely light enough for the purpose to attack the indians from all sides the command numbering as had been stated about eight hundred mounted men was divided into four nearly equal detachments two of them sent out at once as they had each to make a circuitous march of several miles in order to arrive at the points assigned them from which to make their attack the third detachment moved its position about an hour before day and until that time remained with the main and fourth column this last whose movements i accompanied was to make the attack from the point from which we had first discovered the herd and village major elliott commanded the column embracing g h and m troops seventh cavalry which moved around from our left to a position almost in rear of the village while colonel thompson commanded the one consisting of b and f troops which moved in a corresponding manner from our right to a position which was to connect with that of major elliott colonel myers commanded the third column comprised of e and i troops which was to take position in the valley and timber a little less than a mile to my right by this disposition it was hoped to prevent the escape of every inmate of the village that portion of the command which i proposed to accompany consisted of a c d and k troops seventh cavalry the osages and scouts and colonel cook with his forty sharpshooters captain hamilton commanded one of the squadrons colonel west the other after the first two columns had departed for their posts it was still four hours before the hour of the attack the men of the other two columns were permitted to dismount but much intense suffering was unavoidably sustained the night grew extremely cold towards morning no fires of course could be permitted and the men were even ordered to desist from stamping their feet and walking back and forth to keep warm as the crushing of the snow beneath produced so much noise that it might give the alarm to our wily enemies during all these long weary hours of this terrible cold and comfortless night each man sat stood or lay on the snow by his horse holding to the rein of the latter the officers buttoning their huge overcoats closely about them collected in knots of four or five and seated or reclining upon the snow's hard crust discussed the probabilities of the coming battle for battle we knew it would be and we could not hope to conquer or kill the warriors of an entire village without suffering in return more or less injury some wrapping their capes about their heads spread themselves at full length upon the snow and were apparently soon wrapped in deep slumber after being satisfied that all necessary arrangements were made for the attack i imitated the example of some of my comrades 
and gathering the cavalry cape of my great coat about my head lay down and slept soundly for perhaps an hour at the end of that time i awoke and on consulting my watch found there remained nearly two hours before we would move to the attack walking about among the horses and troopers i found the latter generally huddled at the feet of the former in squads of three and four in the endeavor to keep warm occasionally i would find a small group engaged in conversation the muttered tones and voices strangely reminding me of those heard in the death chamber the officers had disposed of themselves in similar but various ways here at one place were several stretched out together upon the snow the body of one being used by the other as a pillow nearly all were silent conversation had ceased and those who were prevented by the severe cold from obtaining sleep were no doubt fully occupied in their minds with the thoughts upon the morrow and the fate that might be in store for them seeing a small group collected under a low branch of a tree which stood at a little distance from the ground occupied by the troops i made my way there to find the osage warriors with their chiefs little beaver and hard rope they were wrapped in their blankets sitting in a circle and had evidently made no effort to sleep during the night it was plain to be seen that they regarded the occasion as a momentous one and that the coming battle had been the sole subject of their conference what views were expressed by them were i did not learn until after the engagement was fought when they told me what ideas they had entertained regarding the manner in which the white man would probably conduct and terminate the struggle next day after the success of the day was decided the osages told me that with the suspicion so natural and peculiar to the indian nature they had in discussing the proposed attack upon the indian village concluded that we would be outnumbered by the occupants of the village who of course would fight with the utmost desperation in defense of their lives and lodges and to prevent a complete defeat of our forces or to secure a drawn battle we might be induced to engage in a parley with the hostile tribe and on coming to an agreement we would probably to save ourselves offer to yield up our osage allies as a compromise measure between our enemies and ourselves they also mistrusted the ability of the whites to make a successful attack upon a hostile village located as this one was known to be in heavy timber and aided by the natural bank of the stream disaster seemed certain in the minds of the osages to follow us if we attacked a force of unknown strength and numbers and the question with them was to secure such a position in the attack as to be able to promptly detect any more disadvantages to them with this purpose they came to the conclusion that the standard-bearer was a very important personage and neither he nor his standard would be carried into danger or exposed to the bullets of the enemy they determined therefore to take their station immediately behind my standard-bearer where the lines became formed for the attack to follow him during the action and thus be able to watch our movements and if we were successful over our foes to aid us if the battle should go against us then they being in a safe position could take advantage of our circumstances and save themselves as best they might 
turning from our Osage friends who were unknown to us, entertaining such doubtful opinions as to our fidelity to them, I joined another group nearby, consisting of most of the white scouts. Here were California Joe and several of his companions. One of the latter deserves a passing notice. He was a low, heavy-set Mexican with features resembling somewhat those of the Ethiopian, thick lips, depressed nose, and low forehead. He was quite a young man, probably not more than twenty-five years of age, but had passed the greater portion of his life with the Indians, and had adopted their habits of life and modes of dress, and had married among them. Familiar with the language of the Cheyennes and other neighboring tribes, he was invaluable both as a scout and interpreter. His real name was Romero, but some of the officers on the command with whom he was sort of a favorite had dubbed him Romeo, and by this name he was always known, a sobriquet, to which he responded as readily as if he had been christened under it, never protesting like the original Romeo. Tut! I have lost myself. I am not here. This is not Romeo. He's some other where. The scouts, like nearly all the other members of the command, had been interchanging opinions as to the result of the movements of the following day. Not sharing the mistrust and suspicion of the Osage guides, yet the present experience was in many respects new to them, and some of the issues seemed at least shrouded in uncertainty. Addressing the group, I began the conversation with the question as to what they thought of the prospect of having a fight. Fight, responded California Joe. I haven't nearly doubt concerning that part of the business what I've been trying to get through my top knot all night is whether we'll run against more than we bargained for. Then you do not think the Indians will run away, Joe? Run away? How in creation can Injuns or anybody else run away when we'll have em clean surrounded afore daylight? Well, suppose then that we succeed in surrounding the village. Do you think we can hold our own against the Indians? That's the very point that's been bothering me ever since we planted ourselves down here, and the only conclusion I can come to is that it's pretty apt to be one thing or the other. If we pump these Indians at daylight, we're either going to make a spoon or a spile of a horn, and that's my canny judgment, sure. One thing's certain, if them Injuns don't hear anything of us till we open on them at daylight, they'll be the most powerful astonished redskins that's been in these parts lately. They will, sure. And if we get the bulge on em, and keep puttin' it to em sort of a lively-like, We'll sweep the platter. There won't be ne'er a trick left for em. As the deal stands now, we hold the cards and are holdin' over em. They've got to straddle our blind or throw up their hands. Howsoever, there's a mighty slight in the draw. California Joe continued in this strain, and by a prolific use of terms connected with other transactions besides fighting Indians did not fail to impress his hearers that his opinion in substance was that our attack in the morning was to result in overwhelming success to us, or that we would be utterly routed and dispersed, that there would be no drawn battle. 
End of chapter 15, part 1.